We're in a series right now where we're talking about the origin and the history of the Bible. And last week we talked about the dating of the New Testament Gospels and trying to get an understanding for the case for the early date rather than the, um, the position that's put forth by many liberal scholars of, a, of later dates for the writing of the gospel. So we laid out some of that case last week. Now today we're going to be talking about the question, um, has the Bible been corrupted? Now, my husband got in a big debate with me this week about this word. <laughs> so I'm going to just kind of explain this up front. Um, when I'm talking about the, the question, has the Bible been corrupted? What I'm talking about is from our culture's point of view, has it been corrupted? Okay. So this is a, a question that people in our culture would be asking is how do we know that the Bible that we have today is the same as the Bible as it was originally written? Okay. So that's the question that we're considering today. Now we believe I've got a couple of statements from our, uh, doctrinal statement as a church as it says we believe um, and we read last week that we use the words infallible about the bible in our church doctrinal statement and that the bible is without error in the original writings so my question is is what do we mean by this in the original writings business like what is this caveat that we have in our doctrinal statement that we believe the Bible is infallible or error-free in the original writings. Because obviously, the Bible that I have here on the table is not from the Apostle Paul, right? <laughs> so what exactly are we defending when we make this statement that it's infallible in the original writings? Are you with me? This is kind of an interesting caveat that we have. <clears throat> so we're going to explore that a little bit today is, and a little bit more next week as to what do we mean by this statement and why is it part of our doctrinal statement in the original writings. So skeptics would say that the Bible is similar to an ancient game of telephone. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And so there's two basic problems with the Bible from the skeptic or the non-believer's point of view. And that is that the Bible is the product of humans and humans alone, we might say, <clears throat> and that it evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. This is the, the, if you ask the average person on the street, if they've had a religion class at a secular university or they've had any um, exposure to the History Channel. This is going to be something approximating what most unbelievers would say about the Bible. Now, our LDS friends, members of the Mormon Church, the eighth article of faith in the LDS religion says this, we believe that the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is what? Translated correctly. You ever been in an LDS conversation and had someone tell you this? Oh, we love the Bible insofar as it's correctly translated. Well, this is actually an article of, of faith for them. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. Okay, from an Islamic point of view, they would say the Bible is a true revelation from God, but it has become corrupted or distorted in its handing down. God gave Muhammad the Quran to correct this deviation. So the theme here is that what we have is the Bible that many people claim that it's corrupted. So we need to look at this claim and to try to understand it a little bit better and to see if there's any merit to this claim and if not, what that means or if yes, what to, to what extent, okay? So let's start by turning in our Bibles to the book of John. The Gospel of John, at the very end of the seventh chapter, John 7, chapter 7, verse 53, verses, uh, or through chapter 8, verse 11. Okay, now, when we look at this, this is the story, just kind of look at it a minute, scan it, what is this the story of? Yeah, the woman, 
Caught in adultery, right. And so this includes a couple of very famous sayings of Jesus. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Yeah. So this is a very interesting story. Now, um, yes. That's right. What did they do to it? Italics. Very good. How did it, now look around at your Bible translations? How did your Bible handle this section? There's there's a little title above it. There's a bar. Yeah. Does anyone's translation completely leave it out? Put it in a footnote. <laughs> that's that's the question. What this says in my Bible, I have the NIV 1984 version, is there's a little header in parentheses with a line that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 753 to 8.11. Yeah, yours says that too. How many of you have never noticed this before? And, and you, those of you who have noticed it, you think, what do I make of this? What, what's happening here? What's, what's going on, right? So the question is, is this passage part of the Bible? What do we think about this? Should we quote it? Should we preach on it? Because this is a very famous passage. Even unbelievers know this story, don't they? Um, it's often depicted and included in movies about Jesus, this encounter. Um, it's a very famous story, and, and this is the only place where it, it has that saying of Jesus about um, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. This is the only place where that saying of Jesus occurs. So what was that authentic to the words of Jesus? Why is it in the Bible? Why do the translator, the Bible publishers have this little note in here? Is, these are all sort of a cluster of questions that we're going to consider in this lesson and next week. So how do we know that the Bible today is the same as the one that was written 2,000 years ago? Then I just kind of want to give you a feel right now for a really quick history lesson. The church begins and there's persecution almost right away. So the church is really in survival mode. It's just trying to stay alive. Then something very important happens in 313, and that's the Edict of Milan. Does anyone know what the Edict of Milan is? Any history buffs? So this is the Edict of Constantine to make Christianity a legal religion. It did not make Christianity the only religion or the state religion. That's often a misconception that people have. It just made Christianity legal so that it was no longer illegal to be a Christian, okay? So this is a very important marker in the life of the church because the church went from survival mode to it is now legal for us to gather and worship and uh, have <clears throat> a church. So this is why the, these, these councils that we've been talking about in the class generally all happen in the 300s. Why do you think that is? Things turn around. They could finally meet, right? Prior to that, they were just trying to live. They were trying not to get fed to lions, okay? So the reason that these councils don't happen until the 300s is because they're just in survival mode. So once the Edict of Milan happens, they can begin to um, have wider conversations as church leaders to deal with some of these controversies. So we have Nicaea happening in 325, very shortly after the Edict of Milan. The Council of Laodicea in 363 is important for the conversations that we've been having about the Bible because this is the council where they are affirming what books are in the Bible. That is when, that, that's where that topic was discussed, was at the Council of Laodicea. And then we have finally at the Council of Constantinople in 381 where they just re basically reaffirmed everything that was decided at the Council of Nicaea. So this is just a little timeline 
so you understand how this conversation fits historically. So the New Testament was written in Greek, and which was the common trade language of the day. So they spoke other languages, but Greek was the, the language that united everyone because that was the, the, the language, if you remember back to your, your old history classes, of Alexander the Great. And to be Greek was to be great. And so Alexander's vision was to bring Greek culture everywhere he went, and part of that was bringing the Greek language. And the Romans just kind of stayed in that flow, and so Greek continued to be the, the common trade language. So it's actually very fortuitous, I would say providential, that the New Testament was written in the trade language. Because imagine how that helped facilitate the spread of the gospel. If it had been written in Hebrew, there would have had to have been this whole other process of getting it translated so that it would be for a gospel for everyone, not just the Jews. So it was really an act of providence that the New Testament was written in the common trade language of the day. So the spread of Christianity required copies of the Bible. Well, can you imagine why? If the gospel's going out, they need copies of scripture to go out with it, right? So these are the centers of Christianity, early Christianity. Here's Jerusalem down here. Here's Antioch. Do you remember in the book of Acts, Antioch is the church that sends out the Apostle Paul, right, and Barnabas. So it's a very key center right away. Over here is Rome. The gospel gets to Rome in the book of Acts. Down here we have Alexandria in Egypt, also a very early center. And a little later is Constantinople, which I have in orange, just to denote that it was a little later. But those are the early centers. Now, just just because I'm a nerd... These are some of the ancient faith churches that are associated with these places. So the Antioch church, or the Alexandrian church, is the Coptic church just down the street at St. John's. I find it fascinating. It's like so close to where we are. And then the Syriac church comes out of Antioch. Well, we have one of those over by the Corner Bakery. You ever notice that on Gladstone? Right across the street from Corner Bakery is the Syriac church. Very ancient church. And it is from Antioch. It is the Church of Antioch is where it has its start. They're also called the, um, interestingly enough, the Antiochian Church. And then our Catholic friends come out of Rome. That's the Western or Latin Church, okay? So often, as the Bible would be copied, sometimes speed outran accuracy. And as time went on, many scribes in the Western Church didn't even know Greek or Hebrew anymore because they only spoke Latin. So imagine that they were copying the Bible. They were making copies of it in a language that they didn't speak or understand, but they were just copying the letters, copying the words. Once Christianity is legalized, then we have the rise of book manufacturers, and these called scriptoria, to produce copies of the Bible in mass. So you have these little monks in darkness with candles copying the Bible. And in my view, these are like some of the real heroes of the faith, are these nameless monks who would preserve the Bible so that we could have it today. We don't know who these people are, but they were all over the ancient world, and they would be copying the Bible in in very difficult positions. Conditions. So this is, this is from about the 700s. This is the earliest icon I could find. But you can see the books up here stacked up. These, they're called codexes. And so just imagine he's sitting on this bench, this hard wooden bench. And he's got a little foot rest down here. I'm glad it was ergonomically correct. And um, <coughs> he's copying in, in here. And he's all hunched over there. I don't know about you, but that looks sort of painful for me for... for Uh, more than maybe about 20 minutes but you know they would be doing this for hours and hours a day and how and how they would do it is maybe we would have a whole room full of monks and there would be uh, someone standing up here reading it out loud and then the monks would be copying it based on the sounds of the words because it goes a lot faster if I stand up here and we have 50 Monks all writing down the words, right? I can make 50 copies at once. It's almost like an ancient version of a Xerox machine, you know. So I can stand up here and I can read 
the, the manuscripts out loud, and you would all be the monks, and you would be copying it down and writing it based on what I said. Now, imagine the challenges of that if you don't even speak that language. So you kind of have some sort of phonetic familiarity with the language. You know that, well, these letters make these sounds, but you don't even necessarily know what, what these things mean or what the words even are. And so these were some of the challenges in the Western church. So we're going to talk about the case of the sleepy scribe. And this is, this is a very typical scenario of things that would happen in the scriptorium over time. So we're going to read about the sleepy scribe. So if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to illustrate some of the problems that copying the New Testament ran into. And everything I'm developing today is really, I want you to think of this as almost like a big history lesson. This is just me explaining the history of what happened. Okay? This isn't about, you know, well, this is how the liberals see it, or this is how we see it. It's not that conversation. This is just a conversation of history. It's almost like a little history lesson of how we got the Bible and what some of those steps were. So the case of the sleepy scribe, he's in Romans 8, chapter 1. As our scribe finishes the verse, he pauses for a moment to stretch his cramped fingers. Then as he begins again, his eyes slip down several verses to the second half of verse 4. And he copies the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh. So, th- so now we have a verse... That reads, therefore, there is now no condemnation <laughs> for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh. Well, what happened? He skipped a few lines. He accidentally, his, his eyes, maybe it had been a long day. It was very dark. There were only candles. <laughs> and he accidentally skipped a few lines. All right. But what I'm describing, we're going to see next week, is we actually have manuscript families. And what happens is that situations like this, then can you imagine the next scribe who comes along, what's he going to copy? He's going to copy that new version of it, right? So then that family will all start having that same family resemblance of these missing verses. And there is a scientific discipline called... Textual criticism that we'll look at next week. That the whole goal of textual criticism of this science is to reconstruct what the original actually said. And to understand those manuscript families and when certain things were introduced. What I call corruptions. My husband didn't like that word. So I'm going to call them alterations (laughs) or omissions uh, into the text. Okay? So... Let's press on here with our sleepy scribes. So what's going to happen to those scribes who come later? Well, later scribes who use this new manuscript as their source text, they're going to copy the same mistake, right? And that was introduced by the previous scribe. Well, then later, another scribe comes along, and he introduces another alteration. He wants to kind of clarify the text, so he makes an addition. So he adds, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but then he adds, but according to the spirit. And so he's he's kind of helping to clarify things a little bit. And um, a few years later, still another scribe comes along and he skips over the very small Greek word of me. Mu Epsilon. And this changes the text further. Because now it says, who it's, and the word me is the word not. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk, who walk according to the flesh. Instead of who do not walk according to the flesh. Oops. But according to the spirit. So he accidentally leaves a word out and that sort of ends up changing the meaning. Of the whole thing, right? By this time, 
three errors have been introduced into the text. Now what? Right? So here's kind of a visual depiction. You have the original autograph, which was what the Apostle Paul wrote, what Luke wrote. Okay? That's what we're going to call the original autographs. So what does our church affirm is infallible without error? The original autograph. But we don't got that. Are you with me? We don't got that. Scribes copy it for distribution. Occasionally, scribes make copying mistakes. Later, scribes incorporate those errors into their copies. And over time, more mistakes were introduced into the text. Now, when unbelievers say that the Bible has been corrupted, I want you to understand there is a sense in which they are right. There is a sense in which there was a process of preservation and transmission that did result in alterations, okay? But as we're going to see next week, the science of textual criticism actually helps us rebuild what we think is a very close approximation to the original autograph. But we have to be careful when we get in these conversations because we don't want to be so defensive that we're like, no, the Bible's never been corrupted. It's it's always been this way. God had like this supernatural Xerox machine and everything has always been the same. No, that's not how that worked. These were humans, fallible human beings, and there was a well-known process in the ancient world of how to preserve books. And the Bible was one of those books. And it went through that same process. Okay, types of errors. So when we think about errors that were introduced into the text, it's important to differentiate between unintentional errors and intentional errors. Unintentional errors are faulty eyesight. <clears throat> Some letters look the same, uh, such as a, sig- a Greek sigma and an omicron. An omicron is, an, is like R-O, and a sigma looks like an O, and it just has like a little tail on the end of it. It's very slight. But they look very similar if you're using a calligraphy pen or something like that. They could almost look the same. Um, faulty hearing. So if we're in a scriptoria and I'm reading it, somebody could have faulty hearing. Some, <clears throat> remember in elementary school how some words have the same sound, but they're spelled differently and they have different meanings. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know the language, maybe phonetically you know what it is, but you know it, it could get mixed up. We can imagine how that could happen. Errors of the mind. Sleepy monks. <laughs> Fatigue. All right. Additions due to scribal notes. As we, if we were in a scriptoria, there might be a, a scribe who would come around and he was a more experienced scribe. And he would write little notes or corrections on your manuscript as he was looking over your shoulder. He would walk by and he was like, oh, no, this is wrong. And he would make a little note. And we have examples of this. Well, then the next scribe comes along and he doesn't know it's a note. And then he incorporates it into the text. And so that sometimes happens. These are unintentional errors. Intentional errors. Sometimes there would be spelling corrections, grammar corrections. They thought that, um, you know, there needed to be a correction in the text. Sometimes there would be an attempt to harmonize passages um, where, like, maybe Matthew had the account a slightly different way than Luke. And they might try to harmonize the passages by adding something, some phraseology. Um, other changes were because of doctrinal considerations, like in the um, healing of the demoniac boy. There's the line where Jesus says, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. That line is actually a later addition <coughs> to the text. It's really, this kind only comes out with prayer. And then for doctrinal reasons, they added, and fasting, because that was important too. So um, it's, these are little small traditions that, that, that the church preserved over time, okay? So we're going to look at a few other instances besides the John 8 passage. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to compare Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 9 to 13. And I have this in tiny type on your handouts, but here it's a little bit bigger. Okay, so here we have the NIV. This is the NIV 2011. And it says, 
our father, blah, blah, blah. And then notice how it ends. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's missing? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So notice what it says here in letter B down here. What does it say? Some manuscripts say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This was a later addition to the prayer that maybe was preserved as tradition um, by the church as being a traditional ending. But most of the earlier manuscripts preserve it this way, where that little ending isn't on there. This is the NASB Bible, New American Standard. Now notice what they do in their treatment. Lead us not into temptation, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then what did they do? They put it in brackets rather than the footnote. Because they know, you know, like, people like this. It's the traditional reading. They're used to it. It was in the old King James. They grew up this way. They're conditioned to it. So they said, we'll leave it there, but we're going to just put it in, in brackets. And then, you know, the person reading it doesn't maybe even... Look at the footnote, don't know why it's in brackets, aren't very curious, <laughs> they don't know what that means. But this is how this translator uh, publisher dealt with the problem. So when we compare Matthew 6, 9 to 13 in these two translations, kind of no looked at what we noticed. One translation puts it in the footnotes. Another translation puts it in brackets. Uh, Ginger, in your translation earlier, you said it was in italics. What did they do for this in the footnote, Okay. So what's the correct version of the Lord's Prayer? It's a legitimate question. Is what, were the actual, what was the actual saying of Jesus? What did that look like? Did it include, for thine is the kingdom and power of the glory forever? Okay, let's look at another one. 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> kind of a little obscure passage here. And we're going to compare the King James with the ESV and the NIV. The ESV is the English Standard Translation. It's a kind of an up-and-coming translation. And the NIV. Let's look at the King James here. Um, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. There are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. So this is from the King James Version. Okay, now let's look at the other versions. ESV, it says, for these are three that testify. So notice the difference. There's a lot that's added here from verse 7. It doesn't include any of this. The spirit, the water, and the blood, all three agree. NIV is very similar. So what do they do? They add a little footnote here, and they have the longer version down here. Now, this longer version from the King James, the King James comes from the Latin translation of the Vulgate. And so it, is, it has these certain longer longer passages. So this is interesting to me because it's almost like what they added was an argument for the Trinity. Like, and it's an interpretation of what the three are, you know, it was the three or the father, the word and the Holy ghost. And they added that in there. These three are one. But what happens is that in the West, in the, out of the Roman Catholic church, out of Rome, that we saw earlier as one of the ancient centers, we have Latin. And from Latin, we get the Vulgate translation. And that becomes the basis of the Roman Catholic Church. And that then becomes the basis of what we now call the King James Version. But then after that version was, was translated, we have these later translations, right? New American Standard, NIV. These were all in the last... Fifty, fifty or so years-ish. So the question is, is what's happening that they need to go back and retranslate it? What happened at the turn of the 20th century 
and continue to happen throughout the 20th century. This is the great discipline of textual criticism that we will look at next week. And so that even though these translations are later, they are purporting to be more accurate than the King James. And we'll keep unpacking this. Okay, really quick. Case number, study number three is the ending of Mark. So turn to Mark chapter 16 if you want. Mark, if you'll recall, is the first, probably the first gospel that was written. It's the oldest. And it's the reflections of the Apostle Peter being preserved by Mark. And it is, um, it is probably the most ancient. It's also the shortest gospel. Now, when we look at Mark chapter 16, verse 9, what does your Bible do? What does it say there? Yeah, Verse, yeah, 9 to 20. So notice how the ending of Mark is at verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. What's missing? The resurrection. The resurrection. <laughs> Jesus is still dead. <laughs> this is the whole core of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, at the end of Mark, at least what we think is truly Markan, if you want, (laughs) that Jesus is still dead. The women are afraid. What a weird verse to end on. Yeah. So was Mark 16 to 19 or I'm sorry, 16, 9 to 20 part of the original? Well, it's almost certainly not original to Mark because the writing style is totally different. There's different vocabulary. And you ever like read uh, something, uh, at least I have, as, as a university professor, I've, I've graded a lot of papers in my life. And um, I, can, I can tell you uh, almost when a student starts plagiarizing off Wikipedia. Because, you know, the, the student has a certain writing style. And then all of a sudden, it sounds like a graduate student. It just <laughs> magically, things start flowing. Technical terms are being used. It's, it's, yeah. And... You, you, just hear, you just know, like, oh, the voice has changed. It's very different, okay? So that's what happens here at the end of Mark, is that it's just a very different voice. It's a very different writing style. And this is a clue that this is probably not original to Mark himself. Now, interestingly enough, I don't have time to play this clip, but if you want to, I have the, um, if you want to look at it, there's the... Uh, YouTube address. But this is a passage that is used by a certain stream of Christianity known as snake handlers. You ever seen these people? In uh, certain remote parts of, uh, of the, the East Coast? Yeah. And they will uh, handle venomous snakes. And uh, sometimes they will even get bit by these venomous snakes. But they claim that they will not die. Because right here in the text, what does it say? It says, and I'm getting to it, 18. 18. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And there is that account of Paul in the book of Acts, where he handles a venomous snake, gets bit, and it doesn't, doesn't kill him. You know, the, there's questions about whether or not this is in the original, and yet there are practices that are based on this section of Scripture. And because they read, usually, the King James Bible, where this isn't noted as not being in the oldest manuscripts, they see it as Scripture. I run into this a lot as well 
with some of my charismatic friends. They will say things like, um, and they often have a preference for the King James Bible, um, but they will say, uh, verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons and they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes. Um, they will drink the poison. They will, oh, this is the part. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And there are some charismatics, not all, but they will use this as a biblical proof that all sick people will be healed. And they'll quote this verse. And if it's in the King James, they'll say, that's the word of God. And when I'm like trying to raise my hand in a class and saying, well, you know, this actually probably isn't in the most ancient manuscripts. Um, maybe we might have a discussion about that. Like, well, you're just trying to undermine the word of God. And I'm like, well, I'm trying to undermine the King James translation. <laughs> but um, I don't know if I'm ready to like stake this as a promise that they will recover. Okay. But you, there are certain charismatics that will use this as their primary proof text. And they quote this over and over and over again. So sometimes these questions are not just academic questions. Sometimes these things actually impact people's lives and how they frame up uh, how they live their Christian life. So here's the argument in favor of its inclusion. The traditional ending of Mark, which we are given here, is, uh, is present in the writings of Irenaeus. It is a fairly early date of 177 AD. He quotes this passage in his book against heresies. Now, there's a few Ireneuses, so if you go Google him, you might be a little mixed up because there's a few of them. But this is the one who was born in Turkey, and he was the early bishop of Gaul, which is modern-day France. And so he seems aware of this passage. And it is included, as we said earlier, in the Vulgate translation, which is the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. And that dates to about 405. And it, it's, there's no such thing as Catholicism at this point. Catholicism doesn't come around until after 1000 AD. So this is just the church. So this is the Western church and there's the Eastern church. So in the West, they have the, the Latin translation because people don't speak Greek anymore. And so they wanted to make a translation for the people that they could understand it. There's nothing weird or nefarious about that. It's just wanting to keep the Bible in the language of the people just like we have it today. So because people in the West no longer spoke Greek, they wanted to Latin translation. So it's put together. It's called the Vulgate. And um, this passage is also quoted by several Western fathers. So there's a strong Western tradition for this longer um, ending of Mark. Now, arguments against its inclusion, I think the best argument is that this passage is absent from the two um, most complete manuscripts that we have. It's called the Codex Sinaiticus, named after Sinai. You see that there, Mount Sinai? It was found at a monastery on Mount Sinai. And Codex Vaticanus, it has the Vatican in, in its title. So it was found in Rome. Okay, so these are their dates. Now I want you to notice, are they before or after the Edict of Milan? After, recently after. So why is that important? They finally had the freedom to compile the entire New Testament in one book. They weren't just trying to survive and copying a book, copying another book here and there, passing book by book around. These are the most complete manuscripts that include the entire New Testament, all bundled together. Well, that makes sense, because after the Edict of Milan, they were able to do that sort of thing. They had more freedom to do that. And so we don't have complete New Testaments before that. Now we have sections. We have pieces, but the Edict of Milan is a very important moment in Christian history because this is where preservation starts getting better and the copying gets more, um, 
there's more of it. There's more copies that start to be um, prevalent, okay? So these two codexes are extremely important, and we'll learn more about those as we go along. But neither of these have the long ending of Mark. So there's some evidence for it, very early Irenaeus, and it's included in the Vulgate in the West. In his book, Against Heresies, he happens to quote this section of scripture in there. And so that seems to lend some credibility that if it was an added ending, it was very early. It was added early, but it doesn't seem to be added universally. It could be a geographical thing. It could be a regional thing. That in certain parts of the ancient world, remember the map at the beginning where there were these different centers of Christianity. It could have been in, that it, was, it had been added early in one region, but not over in Rome. And that would, you know, or in Alexandria or whatever. And so the question is, is what happened to the real ending of Mark? Right? right? We don't know. <laughs> the answer to that is simple. We don't know. But it is curious that it has this very troubling ending. And this is what makes us think there must have been more. But it's also troubling to think that it was lost, right? That could be a deeply troubling thought for some Christians. You mean to tell me that there was probably something here that is not here now? That could be troubling for some people. But the but early tradition um, has this ending. But it doesn't seem to be universal. It takes some time for it to be incorporated more universally into the church. Most of the ideas in, that are in these verses can actually be found other places in the New Testament. Mostly in Acts and in Matthew and in Luke. So it's not deeply troubling to me because most of these ideas are contained other places. Um, I just don't know if I'd get my life verse out of this section. Are you with me? <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'd, I'd be up for building an, an entire doctrine on, on this section. Now, the, the, the skeptic will characterize this as, well, this is a forgery. Well, that's a fairly loaded word, yeah. right? Because a forgery implies intent to deceive. I don't think at all that this is, we could characterize this as a forgery, I think it's really what it is, is probably a scribal preservation of what was already in church tradition. And they just thought, there needs to be an ending here. Let's, let's add an ending. Because back then, they didn't have quite the same um, views of these issues that we do. We would never think of adding to scripture, right? We would be like, no way. You know, we're all, some of us are, some of us are a little uncomfortable with the message because it's a little too paraphrastic, right? So we, we don't, we would never think of adding to scripture, but back then it, it, you have to understand from a, from an Eastern perspective, they're kind of like, meh, it's in the tradition. We know that it's there. It's floating around. We're going to write it down. We approve. It's it. And so you have to have a little bit of understanding that, you know, these are not 21st century Americans doing this. These are ancient people, mostly in the East, and they had a little different way of going about things. So I, I'm not, I'm not uh, comfortable with calling it a forgery because, again, that's, that's an intent to deceive. I, I've come to believe that this is more of a, a scribal preservation of a tradition that was already there in the church. You can get these ideas from other places in scripture, and it was added so that there would be a nice ending. But skeptics will say, they will argue that Mark really intended to end it at verse 8. And that this is evidence that Jesus did not rise from the dead. So you have to be aware of that. That they will try to say that that is a... The report is that he has risen. Yeah. But they haven't had there's no eyewitness account like in the other gospels yeah yeah but they will they will they, they'll say well you know maybe they had a hallucination you know but i'm just letting you know so if that comes up you won't be like wait what all right this is what i said earlier is from a historical perspective the ancient faith traditions will say look 
this isn't the real ending, but meh, it's ancient. It reflects the teaching and practice of early Christians. It's tradition, no big deal. They're not troubled by this in the least. Probably has an underpinning in something that really happened. You can get it from other places. They're not the least bit troubled by it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so wrapping up, back to our discussion of John 8 at the beginning. Um, arguments in favor of its inclusion. Well, there is some early evidence as early as the second century that um, in the Eastern Church that they were aware of this story. Um, arguments against its conclusion is that it's not present in the oldest manuscripts. And again, the style is noticeably different than John's writing. It's pretty unattested that it was added later. Uh, that's really not a controversial point. So what should we do? Well, here's one way of thinking about this. is I think this probably represents an authentic story about Jesus, but it's one that was preserved in oral tradition, and then they eventually wrote it down and put it in there. And that it was a story about Jesus that was well-loved, well-circulated, and then they, they decided to add it into Holy Scripture. Now, for us as Protestants, this can, again, be very deeply troubling because we like things in a very nice, clean, neat way. All right? So what I've tried to do today is give you the most egregious extreme examples of corruption okay so you there's no one can blindside you with well did you know this you already know now what the worst issues of corruption are and out of the whole new testament it's these few verses okay so where does that mean that the rest of the new testament stands pretty strong, pretty strong right we just went over the most egregious areas of corruption so when somebody comes to you and says well the bible's been corrupt you can say uh-huh and let's talk about what that means okay because some people will be deeply troubled by this and so bringing it back to our original question has the bible been corrupted again my husband felt like that word was too extreme he says, it sounds like you're telling people that, you know, their cereal fell in the dirt and they can't eat it anymore. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. But it's, it's that there were, yes, there were alterations that happened over time. There were additions. There were changes. But next week, we're going to talk about, in part two of this message, is the wonderful, beautiful, elegant discipline that I love to study called textual criticism. And it is how books in the ancient world are reconstructed and restored, not just the Bible. This is, you could go get a PhD in this. And it, this is an interesting area that helps us as Christians to be able to answer the question, how do we know that the Bible we have today is what it was originally? And I do think that it is useful for Christians to have a basic understanding of this. With a, we live in an area of a rising population of Muslims. We live in a high LDS area. And chances are that you're going to run into somebody who has a belief about the corruption of the Bible and that their holy book, the Quran or the Book of Mormon, is the restoration to these corruptions that we've gone over today. So this is not merely an academic conversation. This is an important oikos conversation because when someone that you love and you're trying to minister to brings up this question, you're going to have a better understanding of these issues. You're not just going to be like, yeah, well, it's, it's not corrupt. I take it by faith, but that's all I got, you know? So we can have a little bit of that conversation. Well, we're, we're only trying to defend the infallibility of the original manuscripts. That's all we're trying to defend our church's doctrinal statement says that they're infallible in the original manuscripts. We don't have that. 
So we have something closely approximating that, as we'll see next week. But that doesn't mean that all questions are resolved. There are some questions that are simply not resolved. And so, because then you have the issue of interpretation. And see, my interpretations are not infallible. And so I can affirm that the Bible is infallible in the original manuscripts, but that doesn't mean that I have perfect infallible interpretations of all of that. That is an entirely different matter. So, you know, it's, we have to proceed with some due caution there. And I'm even willing to concede with an unbeliever for the purpose of evangelism to say, look, if there's parts of the Bible that you don't understand currently, you know, certain geographical things or weird numbering or whatever, I'm okay with them being skeptical about that because the parts that are clear about the gospel, let's, let's, yeah, let's focus on those and then let the Holy Spirit work it out with them as they grow in their faith and as they grow in the Lord as to what their conviction is about scripture. I don't try to defend that 100% all the way with an unbeliever. I'm leaving space for the Lord to work on that with them. But let's work on the areas. Let's discuss the th- parts that are more clear. I don't want to, this is just me, I don't want to get in a conversation about contradictions and numbering systems between Kings and Chronicles. That's not interesting to me. I would really much rather be in a conversation about the gospel and the resurrection. And I am more willing to let's talk about the historicity of those issues and then let the Holy Spirit work that out with them as they grow in their faith, as their conviction grows, as they learn more about scripture, they'll figure those things out is, is kind of how I approach it in an evangelistic situation. So, okay. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these beautiful brothers who preserved your word, these nameless, anonymous men who toiled on our behalf so that they could preserve your word for us today. We're so humbled to think about their sacrifice of day after day, um, copying these manuscripts so that we could just take it for so for granted and have an app on our phone and whip it out and 45 different translations and, and we live in such prosperity and provision that we, we don't even realize it at times. And we just are so humbly grateful to these, to these warriors and heroes of our faith. Um, help us to be good stewards of your word and to share uh, what, what you're doing in our lives with others. In Jesus' name, amen.